Welcome to Cyber Context, the podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. Jonathan, uh, you know, there have been a few news stories that have brought back into light uh, social engineering, uh, particularly as it pertains to two factors, second factor authentication. It's a hard word to say for some reason. There's a CNBC story um, about a Dr. Anders Abkar a uh, Coinbase customer who had his account balance of more than a hundred grand in crypto um, taken away. It was hacked. He got a call, sounded like a robot, was a robo call. Um, and basically it's a little unclear what specifically happened in this case, but uh, long and short of it is it seems like he gave up his, uh, not only his password or they already had that, he gave up the second factor, um, which this, you know, is is probably concerning to a lot of us who consider ourselves somewhat savvy and that we have certainly at least sensitive things online like bank accounts, um, email, uh, things where we would really be uh, at a loss if we were to lose control or or uh, lose what, what they control. Um, so you have a second factor, you think you're safe. Apparently we're not as safe as we, we may think. Um, what do you think about this story, maybe for starters, that um, crypto and uh, crypto banks, repositories, mixing uh, companies, all of that sort of business that's being built around crypto, um, you know, may not be quite as secure as you would think with that uh, with that second factor. And, you know, is is social engineering actually, you know, something we ought to be paying more attention to? Well, you know, I think you've kind of brought up three kind of distinct questions there, you know. One is, is, is crypto safe? And I think crypto is just as safe as your cash. And that if you give it away to somebody, it's gone forever, right? And the question, the, the, the downside is that, you know, uh, it being digital, it's, it's a lot easier for it to slip through your fingers than a bill in your hand. Um, but, but fundamentally, it was meant to behave in, in that same very physical way. Um, and largely it does. Um, you know, there, there are, of course, cases where the community has decided that that some hack was so egregious, they actually got together and changed history. But that's, of course, not going to happen for, um, you know, a, 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 a random individual that's going to require a major sort of event that really destabilizes the community before they're going to take that kind of extreme effort. Because it's but I think that's an important lesson, too, right? Crypto's rules are only as strong as the community's will to enforce them because the, the rules are implemented in code and you change the code and the rules changed. So I think that's one one small point. And then I think you bring up two things. So is, you know, or maybe even you know, another few things. One is you bring up social engineering as a topic and what is that and, and how is it used? You bring up uh, how secure is second factor authentication. And I think then underlying that is is sort of the base issue of how do we how do we perceive identities and manage authorization online and i think these are all very like you know close topics they're all very related you know so to, to kind of start at the top there you know i think you know social engineering is the practice of convincing somebody to give you more authority than you deserve Right, and whether that's talking them out of their credit card, your their credit card number, or you know, walking through a door you're not supposed to. You know, when I was in high school, we were uh, near a, a, a medical teaching institution that a lot of people interned at, and they had the the rule there seemed to be that 
if you had a lab coat on, you could, or no, if you had a clipboard, <laughs> you could walk into any room in the hospital. And if you had a lab coat and a clipboard, you could walk into any room and touch anything. Um, and you know, that, that's, that's often surprisingly true that simply looking the part and, you know, acting the part is enough to get you places. I know, uh, quite a few people out in the, um, physical penetration community, you know, have UPS or FedEx outfits. They've, you know, manufactured or acquired through some means because with, you know, if you've got a UPS outfit or a FedEx outfit, you can walk into almost any building and be waved through security. <laughs> so, um, and I think there's there's that concept, and and I think it's you know that really fundamentally comes down to that, you know, one most people don't want to don't want any extra work they don't need, and two they are generally afraid of real or perceived authority. I mean, on, on my own, you know, I I used to go to the same movie every week for like a couple of years at some independent theater because if my friends were there. And I eventually got tired of pain. So I just started walking in like I was supposed to be there. And they just let me in. They would never ask me for a ticket. You know, they still use those little paper tickets. So I was always sure to have a valid ticket. But, you know, that they tear, like the admit one. But I just never gave it to them. So I always had a take unspent <laughs> ticket. You know, I suppose maybe that was that, that was uh, defrauding that, that theater. I guess I should feel bad about that. But they sold that space to uh, Barnes and Noble anyway. So, well, there you go. Um, so that, that, you know, so I think social engineering point. So in this particular case, you know, the, the, the adversary set up a situation where they created a sense of urgency for this doctor that their funds were at risk and they needed to act now before uh, to, to not lose them. And that sense of urgency often makes us not clearly think things through. And in this case, they were able to talk them out of their uh, second factor authentication. But I think what you find is for high value crimes like that, sec you know, most second factor authentications don't actually guarantee security because they they up it. And I, you know, Google has you know talked about how they have not had any Gmail account compromises, according to them. For people who even use just SMS for the second factor authentication, mm -hmm. um, I suspect that's not really true, but it's a small enough number that it doesn't appear on their in, in their sort of analytics about things. Um, and because we see, like in the Bitcoin world, where there's millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars in the line, you know, criminals will go so far as to send somebody into a cell phone shop to, you know swap sims to a sim they control your number to a, to a sim they control to be able to use that sms's for second factor so i think the the fundamental problem we're really facing here is just the idea that passwords of any kind are secure is false mm -hmm. because you know what is there the password there to do the the password is there to identify you it's it's to say well you say your you know, Christian, how do I know you're really Christian if you entered into that terminal? Maybe you're the proverbial dog on the internet, right? Uh, as, as they say, uh, well, whatever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's, you can prove you're Christian because you know Christian's secret, right? Well, that's a really pretty weak proof. 
because anybody that knows Christian secret can prove they're Christian, right? And that's exactly what happened here. And, you know, SMS codes, you know, most forms of two-factor where it's another code that I type in only prove that it's somebody who knew that other code. And I think that's really the, the fundamental weakness of passwords is that it's people can't remember things that are terribly complicated and they are not actually good at authenticating that they're giving that secret to the intended party. And that's why phishing works. You create a site that looks enough like the site user expects and they'll just type in their password because, you know, it's since it's a secret that you're giving up, if I can, can if I can convince you and you fail to authenticate the site you're at, you're using, you know, I'm able to steal that secret from you as well. So it's generally this sort of shared secret is fragile. It's people are bad at authenticating and it's a bad way to authenticate on this small little piece of information. And I think authenticate identity, right? There's all then second process of once I know who you are, what are you allowed to do, which is, is authorization. But we're, we're really here talking about, you know, how do we identify and do identification? And regardless of whether, you know, whether it's a, a, a two-factor password or a one-factor password, passwords are still not good. Uh, and people can be, you know, sort of tricked into doing things. So I think, you know, what, what the future, I think, really looks a lot more like is uh, ideally is to move towards cryptographic key-based authentication, where and particularly where those keys are uh, associated with a piece of hardware. And so this could be, you know, your your something like um, a YubiKey or the secure element on a cell phone. So on iOS, that would be Touch ID. On Android devices, that's their um, Titan security processor. Uh, you know, other vendors have their own products. So this is a, you know, on an iOS device, when you when you press the the when you use Face ID or you press the the fingerprint scanner, that's actually going to a separate processor that's different than the application processor the operating system runs on that manages those keys and authenticates you. And when you ask it to manage, you ask it to manage cryptographic keys and perform signatures, even if the whole operating system security falls apart, you still can't steal those keys and they're tied to that device. Um, and so, and you can use those devices to, to force proof of presence. So they have these devices, like they have the touch IP button, the YubiKey has little to touch on it. You, and you know, Android phones will have, have those as well, where you, when the operating system or an application says, Hey, use this cryptographic key material to authenticate. You can configure that key to say, well, only if somebody presses the button. And so now what you actually know is not just you don't you know that it was a that a there was an actual specific request that took place and a person chose to authorize that request. It doesn't it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve everything. Right. If I can run malicious code on that device, I could ask I could make malicious requests and I could say I'm requesting one thing to the user. Well, I'm actually requesting another, but it gets you away from this point where the user can be tricked into giving away their secret because we now use this public key or asymmetric key cryptography where I don't ever give away my secret. In fact, the way these things are constructed, you can't. They use these non-extractable keys. So all I can ever do is say, hey, please sign this for me. Please, please uh, authorize this with my key. 
And I can never say, give me my key. These keys are actually not removable that way. So there's no way to be tricked into giving the, the private or secret key and material away. I think that's a much stronger approach. Um, With, uh, you know, I've actually received this recommendation, I believe on Gmail, uh, that, you know, consider an actual physical key. It may have actually been you, but I can't remember if that's the current or past thing. So that's actually something that sits uh, attached to your computer. Uh, I guess my holdup was I wasn't entirely sure how it would work with a phone, if it's a one-time thing, or uh, if you don't actually need to insert something physical into your phone to make it work. Um, how does it work with the phone? Uh, well, I think there's two generally two approaches. Either it uses Bluetooth Low Energy. Um, uh, when I forget how they pa- power it, maybe through inductive powering. Or I don't actually know how it gets power. Or you can plug it into the phone itself. But you know, it's or, or in fact, you can use the Touch ID now because it's not it's not necessarily that it's it's a the YubiKey. It's I think there is a standard. There's a standard that I believe is uh, U2F which is by the, I think the Fido Alliance, which kind of generalizes this uh, away from a particular vendor's solution. And so you could provide that solution on through the Touch ID processor. You could provide that solution through a YubiKey um, or a number of different ways. Um, you could have a soft, there are soft tokens, which are a lot less secure because they are not protected by hardware. They're protected by the operating system. Um, but mm-hmm. they offer, they offer more security than a password still because you still never give that secret. I can't be fished into giving that away. Um, so it's 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 an improvement. So there's a lot of a lot of options there, but the physical key is most. There are some that will you know you can hold to the back of your phone and will use will work that way uh, for from the near field communications or Bluetooth low energy. Some of them. Um, so there's there's a lot of options there. I don't there's not sort of a particular path forward. And this can't be hacked by some proverbial Russian spy sitting next to you with the high gain antenna. I mean, they could they could cert- certainly uh, intercept a particular request, but 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 what you just said there is, I think, though, a huge step forward, right? Because if it's a network based attack, every adversary in the world is a potential threat to you, and if it requires somebody sitting in the same room. That radically changes the number of threat actors you got to worry about, mm-hmm. and the cost for that attack and the risk. Right? If I'm sitting in in Russia, I know I can't be extradited. Right? I know you can't physically accost me. If I come to the U.S. and I sit in a cafe next to you, I'm exposing myself to a huge amount of risk and a huge amount of costs. Right? You know, it t- costs almost nothing to attack. You know, the hundred and first person versus the hundred over the internet, but each of those attacks in person have a significant financial cost. Um, and again, I think the other big thing is even more importantly, significant risk for the adversary to sit there. So I think think even when some of these are exposed to that, just limiting that scope, I, I like to think a lot about how can I physicalize my security problem? How can I make my security require somebody to physically be in my area versus being anywhere on the network. You know, we've been admonished from writing passwords down on sticky notes. <laughs> but in reality, that's actually a pretty secure way to go. Because, you know, it's not secure against your maid. It's not secure against, you know, 
you Ferris know, Bueller. No, it was the Ferris other one. It was Bueller. War Games. It was, uh, I forget his name. Oh, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the actor. Yep. 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 So much goes back you know, to War Games. Right. But uh, it does. That's one of the best hacking movies ever made. Most realistic, <laughs> I should say. Um, you know, uh, but most of that's not your, that's not the majority of your adversaries today. Like in the 80s, the, when we didn't have the public internet, when we had small local networks, your most likely adversary was somebody in the building with you. And that was probably good advice. And, and you know, let me say, you shouldn't put a sticky note with your password on your screen. But <laughs> it's going to be more secure against Russian hackers than most other solutions. Well, that actually raises a question because uh, a lot of us have been pushed toward password managers and you know, they're awfully nifty at, at generating and remembering extremely long and complex uh, passwords. That was the defense, I believe, of the CEO or a high-ranking officer of the Colonial Pipeline. <laughs> it's like, we, we didn't realize, we didn't think we'd be hacked. We had a really complicated password. I don't know if it was a password manager. Um, but should, does that create a single point of failure? Um, or is it actually a, a pretty good way to go uh, in your mind? Well, I mean, if you're in today's world and you have to use passwords ever, they're really valuable in that they let you use different passwords for every site. Because then if a site is not protecting your password appropriately on their end, it means that when that site's breached, that doesn't breach all the other sites you know, that you use. You know, password reuse is a really common problem. Uh, and you know, there are whole huge lists, millions and millions, if not billions, of um, no, passwords that have been recovered from breaches. Uh, I, I don't remember whether we've gotten to the biggest databases containing a billion passwords yet or not, but we're we're getting in that direction. Um, so, uh, and these and these password databases are generally discoverable. They're found. You can get torrent sites with them. They're passed around in chat channels that uh, that cyber criminals hang around in. Um, so they're they're generally available. Um, so they're really good in that. Do they create a single point of failure? And they do. And particularly if you are using one that has you know, online backup, you should be really, really particular and you know, ask somebody that you really trust to know their uh, infosec uh, before you pick the one you use. Because there have been quite a few cases of security bugs in these password managers that have leaked uh, some or all the passwords. Hmm. But That's scary. They are they are a good idea, and you should pick a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a leap. What about biometrics? It seemed like for a long time that was the direction things were going. That you know your computer or phone would just take a look at your iris, or and of course you know iPhones do have just take a look at I guess at the the dimensions of your face to do an, an ID as long as you're not wearing a mask. Um, is that not quite as safe, or is that easier to spoof than than one might imagine? Uh, well, I mean, biometrics are good under some threat models, um, but you know the fundamental problem with biometrics is they're a password that you can never change, right? So if you've learned it's been breached, what do you do? Uh, and you know, I think maybe most extravagantly, uh, the a group in Germany um, demonstrated uh, as a stunt uh, was able to get. I believe it was still when Angela Merkel was chancellor, was able to get her fingerprint and published her fingerprint online. Uh, and also had done a lot of research, this group, 
or related groups in how to take an image of a fingerprint and turn it into something that most fingerprint scanners will accept. Uh, and there can be very simple techniques like you, uh, you use a, a laser printer and you print it out and that to the toner in the laser printer has enough definition to create a relief and then you put some kind of glue on top of that and peel it off and stick it on your finger and that's enough to trick a lot of fingerprint scanners. Um, you know, by a lot of these face ID things can be fooled the picture and they've gotten better. Now they've got 3D scanning and so now you need a 3D picture uh, of the face. But like, you know, the, the first face unlocks that didn't use uh, some kind of 3D depth could be all be tricked by a good printout and you could hold that up and trick it. So it's, it's they're super convenient and maybe they're stronger than the pin, the length pin you'd be willing to type in, mm -hmm. but there are passwords you can't change. So what do you do when it's been compromised? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and as far as how can how iPhones store that information or how, how uh, Android phones store that information, is it it's sort of like a password? Is it something that uh, just gets turned into a long number, encrypted, and then hidden away somewhere on the phone, hopefully in that separate part of the phone's architecture than, than the one? Uh, uh, that, hmm. I mean, it's going to record some statistical information about your your fingerprint. And then if the new scan is statistically close enough, to the data set, then it says yes. Um, where's the story? I mean, oh, I think interesting. If if you know, it it it, de it really depends on the device and the vendor, right? So it's not about an exact match; it's about a close enough match. Um, you know, some there's certainly been problems with, you know, certain you know family members discovering another of their family member their fingerprint will unlock their device uh, <laughs> because they happen to be close enough, right? Oh. Um, uh, you know, on good devices like like an Apple, like an iOS device that is stored in that secure processor. And they actually do, there's other things you'd have to worry about. Like, well, you know, the scanner is not where it's stored. So what if somebody like puts a probe in and records that scan between there and then can inject a scan back in? So, you know, actually they, you know, I how good the security is, this, I don't know, but there's the fingerprint scanner you touch on an iOS device actually encrypts it over the wire it sends to the processor that would do the unlocking. Um, how are those keys managed? How secure is that? I, I don't know that, but I know they they're attempting because they realize that these are sort of real valid attacks they've got to worry about. Yeah, it, so, yeah, just just to make that point one more time is that it's in the end, what is what's what unlocks your phone is not your thumbprint; it's a measurement of your thumbprint. So if I can inject that uh, a similar measurement without even having your thumb, that's actually enough as well. Right, right. So another not going down, uh, maybe just backing up a step, but sort of even less foolproof slash more vulnerable, I guess, would be. And, you know, while we're on the topic of social engineering is asking uh, is not actually even sending you an SMS code. It's asking you about your hobbies, your dog's name, something like that, um, which I guess sometimes, especially with high value targets, VIPs, people who put too well, much information on Instagram. They're just, be, I mean, that stuff is. That stuff is is we've it, I, it seems like the industry's largely moved away from that, and that's pretty good because none of that's really very secure. And you know, through spending a little bit of money or just uh, OSINT, which is uh, you know intelligence gathering from public data sources, um, it's usually pretty easy to work that out. 
Yeah, yeah, I could, I could imagine that's so it, it's sort of <laughs> this this nuisance when I need to log on to United that I get asked what uh, you know I, I can't remember if it's a mascot, an instrument, whatever, but it doesn't seem like uh, like exactly lock yeah, type yeah. stuff, but you know maybe slightly <laughs> better than just a password. Yeah, I always make up answers to those, but then sometimes I forget what answer I made up. <laughs> I know I make up birthdays too. Um, you know, uh, stepping back to the security of, of uh, cryptocurrency, there was an interesting development that a court filing that came out earlier this month, I think it was February 8th, Justice Department arrested um, two people, alleged conspiracy to launder $4.5 billion in stolen cryptocurrency. Um, you know, talk about <laughs> how you, uh, you know, some crooks make the mistake of going out and buying a new car and that sort of raises suspicion. I don't know how you you hide or, or make use of four and a half billion bucks, but um, it goes back to uh, a 2016 hack of Bitfinex. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Bitfinex, maybe virtual currency exchange presently valued three, uh, 4.5 billion. Law enforcement has seen, seized uh, 3.6 billion uh, in cryptocurrency linked to the hack to uh, a couple uh, is, um, uh, under indictments, they have not been found guilty. You know, uh, it's it's interesting. I guess one of they were very smart not to spend the money too quickly. They stole the money and they moved it another to another location. Of course, this was visible since uh, we're talking about a uh, public ledger here, and they let it sit for a while. But then uh, apparently, it was Walmart gift cards and a few other things like that 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 gave them away. Um, do you think the government's getting better at this? And is is the nature of crypto fraud and theft, um, when you do have public ledgers and you do have governments cracking down on things that seem to be set up specifically to help laundering, um, like organizations that'll take crypto from a number of sources, mix it, and then send it somewhere else. Um, I don't know. It's sort of a, a general question, but do you think uh, you think the government's getting better at this? You know, I... I... I think, well, let's say, I mean, so there's two questions there. Are they getting better at anti-money laundering? There's actually, I think, a, a recent UN report that demonstrably said no. Like they <laughs> they get like they capture about one or five percent of uh, laundered money. So oh. it's not really working. And actually, there's a whole movement about that. You know, we have this whole like know your customer and all these regulations and that you know, the, the thing put forward is if you follow these regulations, you're doing your job to stop money laundering. And it's regulations that 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 are cost everybody money and are a nuisance to all of us yep. and apparently are not stopping money laundering barely at all. So and that the follow the money approach that was used in the 80s before this all got set up was actually a far more effective approach. Um, so I think that that generally, no, we're, we're pretty bad at it. Um, you know, laundering a lot of money is hard, you know, especially cash money. And that apparently it's, you know, most very successful criminals that, that deal in cash transactions eventually can't launder their money and just have to like bury it somewhere. Um, you know, famously, a lot of the narcos have done that. And it's, you know, it was even in uh, um, uh, baking, Breaking Bad, where he, he ended up with so much money, they just didn't know how to launder it. And that's actually fairly realistic um, hmm. that it's it's hard to launder a lot of money. Um, but uh, crypto is interesting in that, you know, 
it's both easier to move around because it's all digital, but most of the crypto assets have no, and no, they're completely transparent. It's an open book ledger. Everybody can see. Now, you don't know, you don't know who owns which addresses, but if you ever move that, use that address to tie to a purchase that could be tied to you as an individual, you know, now you can trace everything back. And so, um, it it's challenging, but I think there probably are a lot of ways to do it. You know, um, that's why you know that though some criminals ask for money in these non-traceable or less traceable ones like Monero or Zcash or some of these ones that that are privacy enhanced. Um, but I I think is the government getting better? I don't know. I mean, did they get lucky here? Did somebody from the community tip them off? You know, uh, you know, and were these people that get caught any good at money laundering? I mean, it was like an internet celebrity is their main gig. So yep. I'm suspecting yep. they're not actually a career criminal and they've never done this before. That um, was a great scene in Office Space where they uh, are trying to figure out how to launder money. <laughs> 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 yeah. they, they try and, and find a criminal who turned out not to be a criminal at all. Yeah. So I think that the, the challenge here is that, that I think People whose job it is to launder money are probably pretty good at it. And I think, you know, we can see, you know, around the millions and millions and millions of dollars that get paid out to ransomware people that those criminals are certainly effectively laundering their Bitcoin. So I don't think that we can say generally we're getting good at it. Um, I think more these people weren't very good at what at very good criminals. And who knows how how the uh, law enforcement found them in the first place? It maybe it was luck. It was maybe a hard detective work, or maybe it was somebody in industry tipping them off, or the community yeah. overall. Amateurs giving criminals a bad name uh, or a bad yeah, I mean, time. I, I think I think the general rule here is that if you've never laundered money before, maybe you shouldn't try and launder a multi-billion-dollar heist. <laughs> right. Start small. Start, go go start, for a million, yeah. five million first. <laughs> start start with a, a dead relative social security check, something like that. Uh, anything yeah. else on your mind about uh, social engineering? I mean, I don't think so. It's it's a really interesting topic. I'm by no means an expert uh, in it, and I think it's if if you're interested in it, there's a lot of good resources to go find out more. Um, but I think you know, in the end, you know, we should try and create situations where social engineering of somebody particularly in our physical space is our greatest risk because right now that's just so much less likely than the situation where anybody on the internet is a risk to you all right well we'll leave it there thank you jonathan moore chief technology officer of spider oak i'm christian whiten if you liked what you heard today please uh subscribe to the podcast tell your friends about it leave us a review on apple and we'll be back again soon with another episode of Cyber Context. Thanks.